Well, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Norton Herbst. I'm one of the pastors at New Denver Church. And today I want to offer you a reflection on Martin Luther King Jr. in honor of MLK Day. And I think this is particularly important for us right now for a few reasons. Uh, first, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you may not be aware of how much King's faith shaped everything he did. I mean, you probably know he was a, a black pastor, he was a civil rights leader, uh, but you might not be fully aware of just how seriously and passionately he followed the teachings of the Bible and particularly the, the example of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. He had flaws like all of us, but his faith was central to everything he did. And so I want to spend a few minutes looking at that aspect of him today. Um, but there's a second reason I think it's important to reflect on him, and that's because we are in a season as a nation where we have been re-examining for several years now everything when it comes to race and justice. And uh, this became a national conversation several years ago, and, and again last summer when a number of cases of police brutality uh, came up, and then there were a number of protests. And um, and yet, I think as, as much as we've said that this problem of racial inequity is something that we need to talk about, right? For a lot of us, we still don't really know what to do about it. And so this is a good time to revisit, um, especially King and his legacy, and explore what did he do about these issues in his lifetime, um, particularly if you're somebody who's been turned off by some of the Black Lives Matter protests, or uh, maybe you've heard about critical race theory and you don't even know what that means, but it sounds bad, and 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 you keep being told that all white people are terrible, right, and all white people are racist, and, and that's not helping at all. And so you know there's a problem that exists in our country, but you just haven't heard the right voice yet that's offering the right way forward. And I want to suggest today that perhaps Martin Luther King Jr. can do that. Um, but, but there's an even more pressing reason to reflect on King, and that's because of the current events. Like literally right now, <laughs> we just had a violent what many are calling an insurrection um, that took place at the at the nation's capital last week. I mean, we were all stunned as we saw the pictures in the video. Um, we have a current president who will not let go of his power. Uh, he has been impeached a second time now because he spread lies and deceit and stoked really this this violence that that took place. And so there's naturally fears about more violence. Uh, there's an inauguration coming up. There's a transfer of power that has to happen. Now there's a second impeachment trial that's going to happen. And so for many Americans, whether you lean left or even if you lean right, it is a deeply confusing and anxious and emotionally charged time. And 
the people who are leading right now, in fact, the person who's in charge of leading right now is not helping. They're not leading well. And so you add to that the pandemic and you add the lingering race and justice issues that have always been simmering and are always just beneath the surface. And honestly, what I think we all are longing for is a voice that will cut through all of this and show us the way forward. And the truth is, it's not going to be a partisan voice. It's not going to be a party platform voice. It's going to be a prophetic voice. And so even though the last thing on most of our minds in this moment, this year, is Martin Luther King Jr., I want to suggest he might just be that voice that we all need to listen to right now. Uh, Now, before we do that, uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I am white, (laughs) in case you didn't know that. Um, Almost everyone in the neighborhood where I live is white. There are a few minorities, but not many. Uh, Almost everyone I work with is white. All the people I count as friends or spend most of my time with are white. Almost everyone I go to church with is white. Now, I I did grow up in the South. Um, There was a much higher percentage of African Americans where I grew up. Uh, I have two children whose skin color is different than mine, but, but if I'm honest, my perspective is very, very limited. And it's been shaped by my skin color. And by my background. So uh, any reflection I offer today would be uh, very different if I was black. Or if I was Hispanic or Native American or Asian or from some other minority group. And so I'm going to try to just minimize my own voice today and allow the voices of others to speak. The voices of some Old Testament prophets. the, The voices of some first century Jews and most prominently the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. Because I think it's their voices that we need to hear in our world right now. So uh, King, if you don't remember, was a Baptist pastor. Um, He grew up in Atlanta, and after college there, he went to seminary, and then he went to Boston University to get a Ph.D. in theology. Um, After that, at 24 years old, he became a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama in 1954. Uh, He quickly became a leader in the early civil rights movement. Uh, There were boycotts and marches that he led. He spoke out against racism. He spoke out against issues of poverty because he recognized poverty was always wrapped up in racism. He spoke out against the Vietnam War. And then, of course, he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963, which really catalyzed the nation and the president at the time, JFK, uh, to make race a national conversation. Uh, Five years later, in 1968, he was assassinated at only 39 years old. But his life and his example and his writings and his speeches and the movement that he led lives on. And if he were here today, and if he could speak to this moment in our 
nation today, here are a few things that I think he would say to you and to me. In fact, I want to offer three things that I think he would say. Number one is that we need to see the systems of oppression that still exist in our society. We need to see the systems of oppression that still exist in our society. Now, uh, this is hard to hear for most white, middle, or upper class Christians, specifically like me. It's hard to hear because, you know, see the systems of oppression. That, That sounds like something that a radical, you know, left-wing anarchist would shout at a rally, right? Fight the systems of oppression. And so when we hear those kind of words or that kind of language, it just, I don't think many of us receive that statement well. Um, We also don't really see it or receive it or hear it because we don't, many of us, actually experience systems of oppression. I am not an oppressed person. There are not huge systems and structures set up that make it harder for me to live my life or to succeed in life. There are not systems that are pushing me down or keeping me down. Do you know what the most serious system of oppression that I face is? The Comcast customer service line, right? I I mean, has anyone else faced that system of oppression? It's It is set up to oppress us. I have experienced hours of oppression by that system. But that's about the most significant oppression that I've ever faced. So I just don't get it because I don't experience it. Another reason it's hard for me to understand this idea of systems of oppression is theological, actually. Uh, theology is just the way you think about God, the world, what's wrong with the world, and what God is doing about it. And so as a Christian, I think what's wrong with the world is sin. But I primarily, and I bet you do too, I primarily think of sin as a personal, individual problem. Because people commit sins, right? They lose their temper, they lie, they cheat, they steal, I do all of those things from time to time, um, maybe more regularly than I like to admit. Um, We judge others based on the color of their skin. Perhaps we even sometimes treat others as inferior simply because they look different. That's the sin of racism, right? And, And maybe I still struggle with judging or treating people in that way sometimes. Um... Most of us probably think that other people struggle with that more than I do. If you're younger, you probably think that your parents or your grandparents struggle with that a whole lot more. You probably see racism as an issue that's much more significant in other parts of the country. Or maybe you see that the the, the far white, white supremacists, they're the ones who struggle with this sin of racism. Because if if you're still listening to this podcast, you would probably say, well, I see that that's a sin, but I try not to see other people by their skin color. I try not to see that race or ethnicity creates some people as inferior or not. I, I try not to allow that to be an issue for me. And if that's 
where you are, then that's awesome. That's great. If you don't struggle with that sin or you're fighting against that sin in your own heart, that's something we should all be working on. But if that's the way we view sin and racism, that's a very narrow view of sin. You see, King believed that sin wasn't just individual, that it could actually be structural, systemic, that that sin works itself out in people's individual actions, but it also works itself out in actual systems and structures that have been put in place that are multi-layered and multi-dimensional and that actually breed and facilitate the hurt and the oppression and the abuse, not just of individuals, but of entire groups and classes of people. And so in the 1950s and the 1960s, it wasn't just that individual white people need to treat individual black people better. No, listen to what MLK said in his I Have a Dream speech. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities, We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, King knew that it wasn't just people. It was entire systems of oppression, tax systems, voting systems, housing systems, segregation systems, travel systems, policing and legal systems. It was entire systems of oppression that needed to be seen and challenged and transformed. And do you know where he got that idea? It wasn't just from his own experience. He got that idea from the Bible. Listen to what the prophet Amos says in the Old Testament. Amos was a simple shepherd. He lived in the 8th century BC in the nation of Israel. And God gave a message to Amos for Amos to deliver to the people of Israel. And here was part of that message. This is from Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Amos says, and he's speaking for God here to the people, you levy a straw tax on the poor and you impose a tax on their grain. 
Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And Amos goes on, but he's basically saying, look, one of the biggest problems in Israel right now is the way that the poor people in Israel are being oppressed through tax policies that are unjust and unfair. They're oppressed through bribes. They're oppressed through the whole way the the court system and the legal system is set up against them. And these are not individual actions. These are structures and systems that have been in been put into place that are oppressing the poor. And Amos is saying it has to change. In fact, Amos gets so serious about this in his book because this is what God tells him that a few verses later, chapter 5, verse 21, he's speaking for God here. He's speaking on behalf of God. And God says this to people who are participating in these systems of oppression against the poor. God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, God is saying, I don't care how religious you look. I don't care how awesome your worship services are. I don't care how great your singing is. I don't care how much you say you love me. If you walk out of the church building and you set up or you support or you take part in or participate in or simply ignore the systems and structures of oppression over against other people who are made in my image, whom I love, who are my children, if you do that, then God is basically saying, I don't want to hear your songs anymore. I don't want your worship services. I don't want your prayers. Here's what I want. I want justice to roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. You see, these are the words of Amos, the Hebrew prophet, and these are the very words that Martin Luther King himself used to challenge a nation. King was saying, pursue justice. Let it it be like a mighty river that smashes through the systems of oppression. Pursue righteousness as well. And you can't pursue righteousness apart from justice. Righteousness is just being right with God. And justice is being right with other people. And so you have to be right with God and right with other people. And they go together. Dealing with your sin against God and your relationship with him is integrally tied to dealing with your sin and the systems of sin you set up that oppress your neighbor or oppress other people. They're both important. Amos got this. Other prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Jesus would say things like this. And so did MLK. (laughs) So much that he said to a nation back then, and I think he would say to us today, it's not enough to just not be racist. 
in your own personal life or your own attitudes or your own actions towards other people. I mean, that's great, but there are entire structures that you often don't see that are oppressive. There are school systems, there are public transportation systems, there are voting systems, there are tax policies, there are police systems, there are legal systems, there's governmental structures, there's employment systems, and they are all bent in a certain way to privilege certain people. And the reason that you don't see that they're bent that way is because they're bent in your favor. And that's why today, when police brutality happens... Right, The black community will often stand up and say, there is a problem here that needs to be dealt with. Regardless of the specific circumstances in this one case, there is a bigger problem, a bigger system that has to change. But most white Americans don't see that. Right? I don't see that. Do you know why? Because the system is not bent against me. Right? I've never been abused by that system or or i often want to individualize it and i want to say well of course there's a few bad cops right there's always a few bad apples and always a few bad individuals and so we need to punish them and deal with them and and black americans are saying no 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 you're missing the entire point this is not about individuals in fact I'm guessing most black Americans would agree that there are good cops and there's bad cops and there's probably a whole lot more good cops than bad cops. That's not the issue. The issue is that there is a system in place that breeds more fear and more anxiety and more oppression and more abuse than for black Americans than white Americans have ever had to experience. I love this quote. Listen to MLK. He said this in another speech, and we don't have great audio for it, but he said this. He said, A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and the justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It's from a speech in 1967. He's using the story from Jesus' life, the Good Samaritan. It's, it's not enough to just help your fellow neighbor in need. I mean, that's great. That's love. That's a, that's a start. But the question is, why are there people in need? Why do people keep getting robbed? Why are there beggars? <laughs> we need to address the system that is creating the robbing and the begging. You see, dealing with our personal racism is important, and that's a great start. We have to start seeing the bigger systems, the edifice. That's the heart of the problem, the policies, the systems of oppression. So the first thing King would say is, 
see those systems of oppression that still exist in our society. But I think secondly, here's what he'd say to each one of us today. Choose love instead of hate as your response. Choose love instead of hate. Which sounds so simple, right? I mean, it kind of sounds like something you would put on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or an Instagram post with a a beautiful picture of the mountains or something. I, I don't know. But it's not that simple and it's not that easy. It's not that simple. If you're black in the 1950s and you live in the South and you can't vote and your schools are horrible and you can't even drink from the same water fountain or use the same bathroom and if you speak out about it, you will be physically hurt. You will get beaten up. You will be thrown in jail. You might get lynched. The natural response in light of all of that is to hate. You see, it's, it's not as simple as just choosing love and not hate. If you're a young black teenager that lives in a city today, and you are literally scared every time you see a police car, it's, it's hard to choose love instead of hate in that situation. It's not that simple if you're in law enforcement Maybe you have friends or relatives who are in law enforcement. And so many hateful things have been said about you or about them, right? And you don't represent that. That's not you. The natural response for you is to hate people that are saying those things. But you see, King believed in a different way. And the way that he followed was the way of Jesus In the way of Paul, here's what Jesus said. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is just quoting sort of a familiar statement of that day. But I tell you, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Don't hate your enemy, love your enemies. And then listen to the Apostle Paul, who was a follower of Jesus. Paul says this in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And King deeply believed in this. He believed that hate and violence was the way of the world. And that the only way to challenge hate and violence, the only way to stand up to them, the only way to resist them was through love and peace and nonviolence. That we can never hate back. That we can never be violent back. That only love will break the cycle of hate and violence. Only love will overcome as Jesus' death on the cross so vividly demonstrated. Uh, When he was 27 years old, Martin Luther King Jr. 
as a young preacher, uh, was put in charge of the Montgomery bus boycott. He was a pastor in Montgomery at the time, Alabama. Um, shortly after that, he was preaching in the church. It was a Sunday night, and somebody bombed his house. They threw a bomb through the window of his house, which was just down the street from the church. His wife and his young baby girl were in the house. And he got word that it had happened, and so he ran back to his house to make sure that his his wife and his baby were okay, and they were. And I can only imagine the emotion he must have felt in that moment. I mean, somebody attacks your home and your family, and you weren't even there to try to protect them? Can you imagine what he must have felt? And word got around quickly that this had happened, and and so people had emptied out the church, and people from the neighborhood had actually gathered at his house, and the, the estimate is that there were roughly 300 to 500 people on the front lawn and in the street in front of his house. And they had gone home and they had gotten their guns and they had gotten knives and they had gotten shovels and pitchforks. They had had enough. They weren't going to take the violence anymore. They were ready to fight back. And King, that night, He came out on his porch and he addressed the crowd. A crowd that had been whipped up into a fury of revenge and violence, ready to fight back. And he said to them, go home. We're not going to hate them the way they hate us. We're not going to be hurtful. We're not going to be violent back. He said, if if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to love our white brothers and sisters, even though they don't love us. Wow. I mean, King is an example for every single one of us today, that however we approach this issue of racism and social injustice, however we need to grapple with the issue, whatever wrongs that we believe need to be made right, whatever emotions we're feeling, whatever justice needs to be brought bare on this entire issue, love and nonviolence have to be our guides. We have to figure out how can we be generous toward those that we disagree with? How can we empathize with those we disagree with? How can we extend grace to whoever is on the other side of the issue from us? May we be guided by love in the way that King was. Now, there's one more thing that I think he would say to us today. Specifically, if you're white, a white Christian, if you're not in that category and you're listening, that's fine. Keep listening. But, but here's what I think he would say. If you are a white Christian and you are live, listening to this, in light of your faith and in light of his faith, he would say this. 
stand up for justice. Stand up for justice. At the end of the day, we need to do something. And this is the, he's standing in the long line of, of Hebrew prophets who said this over and over and over. They would call out these systems of oppression like Amos did. And then Amos ended up saying, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Go address the issue in the court system of injustice and bring justice to bear there. Isaiah would say in chapter 1, learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. The, The prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 22, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. And on and on they go. I could say more. Now, these were commands given to the nation of Israel, but I think God would say the same thing to us, his people, his church today. You are to embody my compassion, my mercy, my love, my justice in this world. And so you need to stand up, even if you've never been a victim of these things, if you've been white, if you've been privileged, whatever position you've been in, begin to see it and then do something about it. In April of 1963, King went to Birmingham, Alabama to take part in marches and sit-ins to protest the segregation in the city at the time. He was arrested by the authorities for peacefully marching. Um, And he, and along with many of the other marchers, he was thrown in jail. And the whole city was on edge. They were fearful that violence was going to break out. A group of white clergy included a rabbi and and a bunch of Christian pastors wrote a letter to the local newspaper there in Birmingham uh, criticizing the demonstrations, criticizing these protests, criticizing King, asking, why would you come to our city and stir up so much trouble? And so sitting in his jail cell, King wrote a response, and it became known as his letter from a Birmingham jail. And he starts by saying that he came to Birmingham because he was invited by his organization. But then he says, and and I want to read several sections of this letter to you because it is so important and powerful, because then he says this, But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You've probably heard that saying before. That comes from his defense of why he would come to protest in Birmingham. But then he goes on and he says something so powerful. He says this. Remember, he's writing to these white pastors. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham. 
But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it's even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. You see... King might say to some white Americans today, you're so upset by some of these Black Lives Matter protests and riots that have taken place. Why aren't you more upset about the conditions that have brought about the protests? In his letter, King goes on to explain his purpose in Birmingham, and it really becomes the most articulate and powerful defense of nonviolent action that has ever been written. So I would encourage you to read the entire letter, but what is most convicting to me is when he writes these words near the end. He says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. He goes on to say, despite some notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt that we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers and priests and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and representing its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. He says, In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And then he says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. And the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed unworthy 
are being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And King is right. The earliest followers of Jesus, they turned their cities upside down. And the gospel transformed everything. It didn't just transform hearts and souls. It transformed systems. It transformed entire economic systems and social classes. It transformed everything. And King's call for white Christians in his day, and I think white Christians today, who are still tempted to stand on the sideline, it's as powerful as it's ever been. We've got to figure out how to stand up for justice. And yes, I get it. It's messy and it's hard. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's become so intertwined in politics and policy. And there's people on one side that feel like they have to act a certain way because of their party affiliation. And there's people on another side that... And there's so many complexities that all of that, I think, makes it so much easier for most of us to just ignore. Right? And we're busy. And there's other issues we have to deal with. There's issues that we think are just as important, but, but let's not ignore this issue. And so this year, for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I want to ask you, to just do a few simple things. I mean, something easy to do would just be to to watch the I Have a Dream speech. Just go on YouTube and search for it. It's about, I think it's 16 minutes long. So it's not even that long. And if you have kids, watch it with your kids and talk to them about it. Or read King's letter from a Birmingham jail. It's all online. Just Google it and read the entire thing. Set aside some time and read his letter from a Birmingham jail and then ask yourself, how can I stand up for justice? How can I see the systems of oppression in our world and in our city? How can I choose love right now instead of hate, which is so important with the violence and the lies and everything happening right now? How can we choose love and not hate? And then how can I do something? How can I stand up for justice? Even in my small actions, every day, how can I stand up for justice? Thanks for listening to this reflection today and may you deeply hear King's words, may they penetrate your heart and your life.